0: Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Dulwali. It's our pleasure to have you join us today. The 2023 election campaign season is now in top gear in Nigeria, but there remains the nagging question about whether the politicians have learned lessons from previous exercises of this type. These lessons would include having durable solutions to many of the nation's problems in specific terms, as well as how to manage the diversity of men and material. My guest on the program today says what Nigeria has always had are transactional leaders, but what it has always needed are transformational leaders. My guest says the candidate of the Labour Party, Mr. Peter Obi, though not perfect, is about the closest approximation of one who has the right ideas, even though he also admits that four of the top candidates are his friends at a personal level. Newsnight talks to professor of political economy, management expert and a former presidential aspirant in the 2019 election circle, Professor Pat Utomi. (laughs) Professor Utomi, thank you for your time. Welcome to the
1: program. I'm enormously pleased to be able to join you.
0: Thank you very much. Let's let's, uh, start off um, with some of the key points, if you like. Uh, where we are today as a country. I I want to get your view about what has happened on the political terrain all through the period that we had the primaries, uh, we had the Electoral Act 2022 before that, which was uh, the law supposed to guide the process and all of that. Do you think that this was an improvement on what we had in 2019 and 2015 uh, 2011 and before that, Has, have we been improving incrementally on what we had before?
2: Well, democracy is always a work in progress, and the judgement is not an instant thing; it is a post thing. Uh, you know,
1: hindsight is 2020. They say uh, maybe uh, a few months, years down the line will realize that this was a quantum leap in improved uh, performance. Maybe we will learn a thing or two that may say to us, well, you guys actually proved yourself as the ultimate recursive system, two steps forwards, four steps backwards. But we don't know. We're going to allow history and historians to judge our times. Uh, The only thing that I can say is that these uh, extraordinary times The profundity of the nature of our intervention will be decided by history. And there's always a judgment of history. And and that is, in fact, the great difference between yesterday and today. It used to be that Nigerian leaders in the 50s and 60s were almost always fastidious about their name, the weight, the value, the protection of their reputation in history, before history. Uh, Part of my fear is that the collapse of a sense of shame in our country, the collapse of culture, and the invasion of the political arena by people who should not be actually allowed to play in politics, not by force, but by the judgment of others, has brought us to a fairly sorry pass in which I wonder if they ever think of how history remembers them, if they ever think of their name, if they ever think immortality and think how their grandchildren will feel when they gather around an electronic fireplace and think about their times. That's the only thing that bothers me. If not, um, history will, will give us the judgment that we deserve.
0: Let's, uh, let us let uh, us look at it, uh, I, I don't know if you also think of this as a case of the chicken and the egg, which one comes first, because w- what you've talked about now uh, goes to the heart, the base of everything we're supposed to be building, uh, including the democratic society that, uh, uh, that we aspire to, and which is the value system. Uh, uh, what, what are we teaching our children as values, uh, and all of that, and There are those who say that, well, because the leadership we have had down uh, uh, the decades has not emphasized the question of values, uh, that has also led to the collapse of our value system. Then there are others who talk about the followers, that leaders don't emerge in a vacuum. Leaders emerge from amongst the followers, and uh, that if the followers themselves are not necessarily uh, disciplined, law-abiding someone i was speaking to uh when i was uh, out of the country a couple of weeks ago said to me uh anybody coming into nigeria just has to look at how people drive uh to be able to see whether this is a disciplined society or not and that you know we're we're not so which one is it prof is it that it's the leadership it's the followership or what
1: well it's all of the above but i think more Uh, importantly, it's it's about leadership, and I explain why it is about leadership. Uh, uh, First of all, uh, there's an agreement, a fair decent amount of consensus around the fact that values shape human progress. You know, back in the 1990s, I spent a year on sabbatical leave at the Harvard Business School, writing a book uh, titled Managing Uncertainty. Now, during that period, um, Harvard hosted a remarkable colloquium on how values shape human progress. Uh, That colloquium was driven by a very profound statement made by a former Harvard professor who became a politician, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, his famous two truths. I don't want to go into his details, but, you know, he was asked to define the difference between Democrats and Republicans. And he said, you know, the central conservative truth is that it is not politics, but culture, your values, that are responsible for the progress of a society. But the central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. What we have seen, unfortunately, is that we don't show enough leadership or followers to set the tone. If you blame followers, as we sometimes tend to, uh, what you then do is look at what happened in Asia. Most of what we know today as progress in Asia was not seen by followers who behaved in the right way. They just got a set of people who saw what it meant to lead. And these people who saw what it meant to lead began to live by example the way they thought things should go, began to you know, imagine a future that people could not even think about, and because they were actually transforming leaders as compared to transactional leaders, and this this, this difference is very important uh, because it is also an area of great interest to me. You know, when I was in grad school in the US back in the 70s, uh, there was a gentleman called James McGregor Burns, who was president of the American Political Science Association. And, and, and Burns had written a huge tome, a great book on leadership.
2: And, and in that,
1: he tried to isolate the idea and the concept of um, transforming leaders as different from transactional leaders, whereas transactional leaders depend, OK, on the followers and do a deal. You vote for me, you help me steal my box, I help you become a local government chairman. Why are we full of thugs in public office today? Because people who are governors generally were transactional leaders, say, hey, my friend, You help me prevent democracy by harassing voters and getting outcomes different from the people's will. Then you become the next commissioner for this. And all across the country, that's what we have. That these guys don't have any idea what it means to lead should not be a puzzle. That's how they became people in positions of power or authority. They were not leaders that emerged. They were the outcome of transactional relationships. But transforming leaders. You know, have lived a life of sacrificial giving to the people for the good of others, such that when they see a great future that the people can't even imagine, the people are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt by just following them into this thing they don't know that they're doing. And it turns out to be profoundly of value to all. This is how the liquid use of this world emerged as transforming leaders. And what happened to our Asian? colleagues who are luckier, far luckier than us in Africa, is that once a, a league when you went forward and things were going well, and Mahathir Mohammed across the border from the Straits of Malacca in, in Malaysia uh, essentially realized, wait a minute, we've got, we've got to go this way. They are Thai neighbors. Look, these guys can be making progress and we're doing what we're doing. And we get the flying geese phenomenon. And so as a region, they flocked towards greater success. Driven by leaders who were physically alone. I remember when Mahathir Mohammed uh, uh, drove the new economic policy in Malaysia and wanted Vision 2020. People didn't see what he was seeing. And he more or less said to the elite, all of you guys, look, stay in that hall. Don't come out on you. Decide how we work and live together as a people. They had had race riots in, in Malaysia. When we had our civil war here in 1969, there were race, race riots. Chinese troops who have been slits on the streets of Kuala Lumpur. But Lyndon Baines Johnson's famous Texan kind of statement, you know, it's better for everybody to be inside the house, pissing out, than for some people to be outside the house, pissing in, was the mantra that he used to get the elite to come together and say, come on, guys, let's fix Malaysia. Today, we know where we are compared to where Malaysia is. We just haven't had people who have had that gifting come out of Nigeria, sadly, in the last... Uh, uh, in our recent history. And because of it, Nigeria is prostrate. It is the poverty capital of the world. It is the world's killing field. More people are killed in Nigeria today in an apparent just uh, little insecurity. Compared to most of the civil wars of the world don't have as many people killed a day as we have in Nigeria. But we pretend it's not a civil war. Nigeria is in a brutal ruling civil war on the verge of anarchy. Now, if we had leaders, this is the time for them to get together and say, we've hurt our people enough. Let's
2: stop this thing. Being in power and having state capture to use for our personal material goods, buying
1: private jets and silly things like that, is not worth punishing 200 million people. That unfortunately is what we've had because of bad leadership. To blame that on ordinary people who don't know enough, I think it's not fair. I think it is this leadership that eventually shows the way to these ordinary people who may not know that there's a better world and then discover it because of quality leaders, the way Abraham Lincoln showed the American people that a post-slavery world was a better world when they didn't understand any better. That's why Abraham Lincoln is used by most people like uh, McGregor Burns as the ultimate example of a transforming leader. What Nigeria desperately needs are transforming leaders. Sadly, we, are we now, just have transactional fellows.
0: We're now in the 2023 uh, season. Uh, of, uh, the elections will come up in 2023, but we, are, you are, we have already started seeing campaigns uh, from some of the major and uh, not so major parties at various levels. Uh, do you think, uh, because I, you're, you're, uh, uh, you're an economist, you're very well known in that field, a lot of people know that uh, you, you have a lot of uh, information, insight and knowledge about development, and uh, you've exhibited that even in your answer to my last question, uh, but do you think this group of people who are now angling for votes, uh, be it for the presidential or the governorship and so on, have you seen that they, in fact, get what it is that is the existential threat, uh, if you want to put it that way, to Nigeria at the mm-hmm. moment. Do they, do they get that there's high levels of youth unemployment? Did you see that they're talking about Nigeria's high debt burden, uh, for which many people have said is unsustainable? Do you see that they're talking about the unsustainability uh, in terms of finance, of uh, things like uh, the petroleum subsidy? Uh, and so on. Uh, have you heard or seen anything that makes you think that, okay, yeah, here are people who get what it is, and there's going to be a competition of ideas? But let's, let's be very fair and
1: frank, laddie. The top four running candidates are friends of mine, good friends of mine, and I don't mean come good friends. Uh, but I think that I wish everybody could come to an understanding that this is beyond just a grab for power. I wish we would realize that our country is on the brink. Um, Let's take on some of the issues that you have raised on sustainable debt. You know, when I spoke to a friend of mine, and this is a really good friend of mine, he made it a bit of a joke, uh, but it's not funny. And I said, look, the place is going bankrupt. There will be no money to share very soon. And he said to me, my friend, will there be a budget? I said, of course there will be a budget. There will be a budget. There will be money to share. My friend, sit down. Now, it's a bit of a joke, but the country is technically bankrupt. But that's not the end of the world. India was technically bankrupt in 1991. I was studying Southeast Asian economies. I flew into uh, uh, um, Delhi. And um, interestingly, back in those days, um, India had a high commissioner in in, in Nigeria called Lalit Mansingh. He was the, I think, dean of the diplomatic corps. Uh, Mansingh was the first person to use some very charitable, were to describe me in fact the world bank resident representative when he called me that i said what me who am i he says come on if an indian high commissioner calls you guru you are a guru i said oh dear <laughs> and the lalitman thing was was here in nigeria india was in very difficult times and um i went into india technically india was bankrupt three weeks trading money left in its foreign reserves india had had the uh, uh um Well, unfortunate incident of uh, um, Gandhi being killed in assassination uh, uh, attempt, Rajiv Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi was the first Indian leader in my mind who saw that the things, the policies, the strategies of India were not going the right way. Unfortunately, Rajiv Gandhi could not make a break from what was keeping India hostage, essentially because in the main, those policies were the policies of his grandfather, Pandit Nehru. And his mother, Indira Gandhi. And so he felt that as a scheme of the Nehru Gandhi dynasty, uh, he could not repudiate
2: what his lineage was about. And then he got killed in that assassination attempt. And the Congress in
1: Indira party, <clears throat> unsure of exactly what to do to hold for the next Gandhi to be ready, if you will, uh, appointed Rao prime minister. Na with very little to lose appointed a very unlikely finance minister called Manmohan Singh who as you know became prime minister later yes and manmohan singh initiated a series of policy changes which within a few months provided confidence to the non-resident indians the diaspora and money began to pour into india at a point like a billion dollars a week into their foreign reserves so when you hear of people like me going around talking to Nigerian diaspora. And we say, what are you doing in diaspora? (laughs) The the, the thing that will save Nigeria is the diaspora. It was proved through the 20th century. Japan was restored after the Meiji restoration by the engagement of the Japanese diaspora, largely coming out of Germany. India, China Rising were essentially functions of the Indian and Chinese diasporas. And it seems not like rocket science to realize that a country that does not have enough doctors that and contributes 70% of all the black doctors in the United States of America will have to be redeemed by its diaspora, a country in which I have just recently learned, a surprise, a former American general in the Africa High Command, I was having lunch with him in Washington uh, just a couple of Fridays ago, and he said to me, do you realize that Nigerians, in the U.S. and Canada, with their income levels today, constitute the most uh, a wealthy ethnic population in North America? I have never thought of that. So a country that encourages JAKPA, as we now call it, those who saw disadvantage in their country have all moved out and become remarkably successful in another country. No one will better redeem redeem that country than that diaspora and their historical antecedents to that. So uh, we've got to imagine that the conditions in Nigeria, which are so negative, can be reversed. But we have to understand that the diaspora have to play a pivotal role in the revision, just like they did with
0: India, in Japan, and elsewhere. Indeed, uh, that may very well be the case, uh, Prof, but I'm also looking at a situation where where while that would have to be part of a broad look at policy uh, and how uh, a vision is put in place to guide where we're going from here onwards. And uh, in in that circumstance, that was why I asked the question, have you seen anyone or have you seen anyone, any group, uh, so, yeah, any yeah, party? Yeah, perhaps I, I failed to answer that question. Look,
2: all of them can, of these people that I know. However, who can be more passionately committed given the circumstances of their engagement? Obviously, the, 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 the line begins to thin here.
1: Let me give you a, a couple of basic rules. Around these things, all of them can put together people like me, and they have previously. In fact, there's probably none of them except Kwankwaso uh, that I have not sat with and looked at where our country should
2: be going. Uh, even though I sat with him and talked about many things, um, so a leader can always put together a group of people. But who of them has skin in the game in a manner that they can Own it.
1: Who is coming out of a system that will not pull them hostage? You see, the reason that I have worried about Nigeria's future so much is that I have been there. I have chosen to be engaged. I am long engagé, as uh, Ruben Abati called me more than twenty years ago. The engaged, the man of action, intellectual as man of action. I didn't stay, you know, propounding any theories. There is nobody. Who has led Nigeria in the last 30 years that I have not had a relationship with, none. In fact, of all Nigerian leaders since I was 10 years old, the only one I probably never really knew, or the only two I never knew, were Abacha and Murala Mohammed. Every one of them I've had a relationship with. So I have been an engaged person. I've challenged people, I've talked to people about how it should be done differently. The major point is. I have found in studying very closely, I was there, I was around the table when the PDP was being founded. I was around the table when the APC was being founded. I've come to a very sad conclusion that the structure, the nature of our political parties are such that it is almost impossible, very difficult at least, to come through those structures and make a country make progress. Why? Because of the transactional nature that the structure imposes on those who come through the process. By the time you emerge through the process, you are indebted to all kinds of Lebanese, Indians, and funny characters who hold the state in capture. Progress of the country becomes a marginal part of the centrality of your essence. You may be a good person, but you are hostage already. So I apply from structural economics a paradigm that I like to talk about structure, conduct, performance, paradigm. Industry structure shapes conduct. And conduct leads to performance outcome. If you come out of the PDP, if you come out of the APC, I am almost certain you cannot make Nigeria make progress. Put me any day, and I'll prove it theoretically and all of that, because
2: you are hostage to um, behavior that will prevent the country from really making progress. And this is why, in the current,
1: uh, dispensation, I have chosen that I cannot possibly support any of the ones that come from those structures.
0: Given that scenario, um, let us uh, look at where we are now, because a lot of people, as you said, a lot of people have simply given up, and uh, uh, those who can, who qualify, who have the criteria, uh, are simply headed for Europe and the United States uh, and other such places to go and try their luck, and and now that is not because they don't know that the grass is not greener on the other side i mean a lot of them are fully aware and they're pragmatic enough to know that look things are quite rough and tough on that side but that nothing on that side could be tougher than what's going on here uh and 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 this is what i have gotten from what from those i have spoken to who have upped stakes and left with their entire family uh for other places and these are the young these are the youth. These are the people who should be driving uh, the system. So it's I, not just I guess young,
1: uh, Laddie. I, I have seen middle-aged people who are preparing to retire abroad because
0: there's no health care that they
1: can rely on here. And yet, as Andrew Young said to us uh, a few weeks ago, "You know, if you need a doctor in Atlanta and he's not Nigerian,
2: better watch out. Maybe you don't really have a doctor.": uh, <laughs> The truth of the matter is that. We have
1: a beautiful country that can be made greater than we can even begin
2: to imagine. But we are hostage to hustlers, people who, doesn't matter what happens to the country, as long as I can have power
1: and I can uh, use the common resources of the country as I want, everybody can die. They don't think of it that, that way, but that's the reality of their philosophy. And that has hurt us. We, Look, before this election season came around, I I was making remarks. And sadly, maybe he took the heat for
2: me. I don't know. About three weeks before um, uh, Chief Afeb Babalola called for a um, government of national unity, I had made exactly the same statement in a
1: press conference. The video is still there everywhere. I said, look, our country is not working, and it can't work. The way it is. Perhaps serious people can say, let's do what General Gowan did in 1966, uh, 7. And maybe we can save our country. But I understand that it is not a comfortable conversation for people who think for the minute they're getting in the way of our grabbing power. So let them go on until they get to Somalia. Because that's where Nigeria is headed.
2: If serious-minded leaders don't come forward and say, What is this thing? You know? Um, We are troubled, but troubled by the greed and the ambition of a few people. What
1: we need are leaders who can come together and say Nigeria is worth
2: saving and give everything they have to make sure that we can save it. I have looked at this for a generation and I've poured myself out working with young people. I've created a center for
1: values in leadership. Just to try and educate a generation that leadership is not about money in your pocket, or power, or riding a siren and chasing people off the street. Leadership is about sacrificial giving of the self for the benefit of immortality that comes to you from doing it. I have struggled to try and make people understand that to lead, there are two essentials. You must have knowledge, deep knowledge, not be a professor, but have deep understanding of the problems you want to solve, and then a sense of service, this sense of care towards others. Uh, Look at those who uh, uh, pervade your so-called political space. They are me, myself, and I narcissists, people who are consumed by self-love. Those kinds of people can never bring a country to progress. Invariably, countries make progress when self-sacrificing people who look at their reward in a deferred manner and look at immortality, make themselves available. The kinds of people who will run a country and not allocate a plot of land to themselves and come out of that service process for people. for society makes them rich in the value of where they are held in the hearts of men. And that's what we have missed, unfortunately, in the last. And so these men have not even focused on developing young ones. And so when I create things like the Center for Values in Leadership, it's trying to make younger ones realize that please don't be like this men. If you be like this man, your country will never make progress. And, and, I, and I hope that people are hearing and realizing that nothing we're going through in Nigeria today is a surprise to me. And if you make the effort to go and read everything I wrote 25 years ago, I predicted today in very, very clear and specific
2: terms. Because not rocket science, you could predict we're going to get here. It was obvious. I mean, just look at small things like power. You can't have an industrialized society. You cannot have progress in the modern world without power.
1: And yet we have generations of leaders stuck in
2: 2000, 3000 megawatts. I used to organize every year a conference on power at the Lagos Business School. 20 years ago, 50
1: years ago, my late friend Joe Makojo, I remember he and Leah Limoki came to one of those conferences when they were both the prime people there. And between them, they said to us that to have per capita power of what South Africa had, we needed 88,000 megawatts. I'm talking about like 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> Where are we? We are still dealing with 3,000, 4,000. So 4, oh, we can produce 15,000, but we can only distribute 5,000. And I mean, come on. Power is not rocket science. It was fixed more than 100 years ago. But because of corruption, because of egos, because of all of that, look at Egypt and what they do in a short period of time with power? Why did our deal with Siemens travel a different track than that of Egypt? We got to sit down and do an examination of conscience and say to ourselves, have we done right by our children? That is the question of today. Have we done right by our children?
0: You seem to have, uh, in this particular circle, uh, you seem to have uh, acquired a new uh, band of uh, followers and fans uh, because uh, it was assumed. You are—you had become one of the prime uh, members of the obedient movement, uh, talking about uh, support for the candidacy of uh, the Labour Party presidential candidate, Mr. Peter Obi, former governor of Anambra State. Is it true that you're supporting him because the statements that uh, you are quoted as having given uh, tended towards that? Like that. Look, I mean, if I'm going to pick one of all these guys, then this is the person. Uh, who seems to approximate most closely uh, the idea of, of the kind of leader that uh, perhaps we could have.
1: Th- that is quite true, actually, because uh, what I consider, you know, um, you know that uh, in the last couple of years, in looking at how I think for the APC and PDP had come to a point where they could not provide Nigeria progress, and I can prove this, I can show it, uh, I, I kept thinking, how else can we do it? And methodically, we began to walk through a process that was some, sometimes mocked, sometimes a, a, a hoop for, and all of that, that came to be known as the thought force. I, didn't, I don't like that usage, thought force. But anyway, it came to be called the thought force. And why was it important? Could we find a way that focused on Nigeria rather than power
2: and individuals? And this movement, of course, was developing and dealing with its many
1: challenges and all of that as as is naturally going to happen. And I said to myself at one point, how can this really realistically have, quote unquote, structure? Because there's this game in Nigeria that says structure. Because Nigerian democracy is all about intrigue and rigging. uh, What structure is the machinery that enables you to cheat others? so that you have people who are the pulling boots uh, when the other man doesn't have enough money, since you have stolen so much from government treasury and can use it to oil this structure, um, they will just get together and say, look, let's take the votes and give to between us at this percentage and, and, and stuff like that. So how can we get structure? It occurred to me at some point that the path to this would be the labor movement, not the labor party, the labor movement. And so I began to engage labor movement. I had a series of meetings with uh, the Labor Party. I actually made a presentation to their uh, NLC, I'm sorry, what they call the uh, leadership team meeting in Lagos uh, a couple of years ago. And early this year, uh, President, uh, NLC President Ayuba Waba responded remarkably positive to the entreaties that I have been making. And we began a series of conversations. And meanwhile, the guys who had worked with me on this, in their back, were programming for me to be the candidate that would come out of that process. I have to tell you that I didn't think too much. All I wanted was, how can we save Nigeria? And I was driven by a collegial approach. And somebody else that caught that vision and began to drive another initiative, which I was then brought into, uh, was Dr. Usman Bugaji, Rescue Nigeria Project, pictured collegial leaders in the understanding that no one man has all the answers and that we need collective holding of each other accountable of a group of leaders. And we began to work towards this collective and we're going to then present one of us. And the guys working with me, like uh, Wale Okunui and began to, a uh, uh, program that I would be the person that would come through that process. For It has never really mattered whether it's me or anybody's can Nigeria work, you know. Uh, and, and, and they've accused me many times that, oh, that's why they use you. And then they use you and then they get power. And then, they, of course, because they don't want your ideas, it will prevent them from stealing the state. They will isolate you and then they will use power as they want. I, I was looking for honest people who wanted to save Nigeria not to use Nigeria for their own self-interest. And um, as we were engaged in this process, uh, uh, P2B got fed up with the uh, uh, PDP process and dropped into the net. And I thought to myself, so P2B says just about the things that I say. He's repeating them. And he has had occasion many times to stop and ask me my views about this, and I'm prepared... My, him to some of my writings, and engage with might. him, and I thought to myself, okay, if B is involved in this, um, heck, day. he's younger than me. We he end probably end have uh, more energy. What we need, if if I had my way, leadership day. in this country would go to a 48 year old. Uh, uh, um, hey, I'm six to six. I've done my bit. So let's bring our energies together and make be the vehicle, the front runner, that collectively all of us can put our weight behind him and help make a new Nigeria come about. Now, that's how that track uh, was engaged.
0: Given that, that that explanation you've given then leads me to another dilemma now, which is that a lot of those in the uh, obedient movement are young people. Um, we've seen them in rallies, we've seen them on social media, we've seen them uh, elsewhere. Uh, But they are also the ones who are fleeing the country in droves, uh, who are uh, leaving uh, without a thought about coming back. So it presents a kind of paradox for those who are observing this, that while they are in support and they are finally trying to engage uh, in the process and participate so that they can help determine the outcomes, a large number of them are also leaving. And that leaves the question, how much can they actually do if they are, as you said, jackpying, as they are, leaving, they are leaving the country? So it kind of presents some kind of paradox, doesn't it?
1: Well, it may seem so, Ladi, but the human being is a surviving being. The human being will escape, you know, in my language they say, only a tree. Stay standing where they see somebody with a knife coming to kill it. This generation of political leaders have killed the youth of our country. Okay? And they see them trying to kill them even more. And all they're saying is, I'm not in three. Let me get out of their way before they kill me. And, and so it's a natural instinct to jack back, literally speaking. The good thing about the phenomenon, as we can see from the experience of India and China, is that those who jack back today, either they or their children, will save Nigeria ultimately. Uh, but very importantly, it's only a small percentage of them that will even be allowed by the system to jack back. And many of them will get visas. The rest will die in the Sahara. And they know that. So the time to fight back for them is now. So this is what explains the phenomenon. Uh, so I should not, because if you are playing human in an existential crisis condemn all of them. Let's also be careful because this is the majority of Nigeria, those of us who are people like me, today constitute less than 6% of the population of Nigeria. So the majority of the people are fleeing a small minority who are committed to destroying their future what kind of democracy can you call that they should take back their country they don't want to get rid of six percent of us if they were to do that it would still be within their rights however they are not saying that they want to work with us but if we were real parents and love them and show love to them and guided them they'd be pleased to have us And and benefit from the fact that what we can see sitting down, they may not see standing up. And in harmony, the generations can have a handshake. I spent time talking with younger people and and challenging them. Uh, 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 Just before I got into this recording with you, I was talking to a 40-year-old senior advocate of Nigeria. And I said to him, look, you fellows, your generation needs to get up and do more. We were in our 20s when we began to set the course for this country. The young military boys who shaped Nigeria were in their 20s and their 30s. Don't let anybody tell you you're a young man at 41. You all should take your country back and do with it what you see right by the future that you project. And people like me have a duty to just do our damnedest best and show the way. It's an obligation. Every generation has a duty to make its shoulders available for the next generation to stand on so they can see tomorrow more clearly. Unfortunately, we have amongst my peers those who have not understood this historic duty well. And we want to hold on. At 80, we want to still do be the ones setting the course when we started doing it in our 30s. No, I say that is unfair. If at 27, without any Godfather, nobody, somebody looked at me and said, we think your ideas can make our country go a certain direction, and brought me into a presidential advisory position. I don't see a reason why a 48-year-old boy, or man, sorry, you know, that's what you would probably say, man, (laughs) would be thinking, (laughs) I'm I'm young. No, you're not young, you know?
0: Indeed, indeed, Prof, but uh, as as we're winding this down, I must ask you this. Everything you've said uh, and how this system is going to produce uh, the kind of uh, transformational as opposed to transactional leadership uh, will devolve around the electoral process which will take place next year. Uh, And a lot of people have said that perhaps more than every other thing that has, you know, affected our electoral process in the past, What is going to be the game changer in this one is the state of insecurity uh, that the nation is currently undergoing and the ripple on effect about many people being too scared, being too uh, uh, traumatized uh, from previous experience and so on to participate in the process. Are you worried that that may in some way uh, uh, affect the freedom, the fairness, the transparency, and of course the outcome uh, that uh, you have expressed uh, uh, that should be uh, what will come out of this electoral process next year?
1: Well, it's natural to worry about that. Um, What has sadly defined us has been this funny thing called insecurity. And as I said, if you go back and see and look at my writings, uh, nothing about this state of insecurity is a surprise. Uh, just about the time uh, the civilian government was coming in in 1999, an American called um, Robert Kaplan uh, published a book titled "The Coming Anarchy," and he more or less pre- predicted what we are going through. How ethnic, religious, economic cleavages will come together in a way, and even gave a city in Nigeria called Jos where it could come together in a way that. West Africa could descend into anarchy. Uh, My reaction as uh, an engaged man was to immediately create a group, which we call NUTRA, Nigerians United to Resist Anarchy. And part of what we did was buy books and send to people in policymaking positions to show them where our country was going if we didn't intervene appropriately. Sadly, of course, we didn't do much uh, with that foreknowledge and we are where we are. But also very important, besides insecurity, and we must do everything to to contain as much of it as possible to make a democratic process work uh, next year. Uh, A second part of the problem is the role that INEC has played in elections. Now, there are some people who despair, who think INEC can never be a fair umpire, who think INEC is an instrument used for abuse by those who have power. I choose. I choose not to despair too much. Of course, I'm not comfortable. I will keep pushing them. I don't like the fact that voter registration is not continuing. I think that is a an invasion of the democratic right of the citizen. But INEC likes to put bureaucracy above democracy. I think that all efforts should be made to ensure that people are getting their PVC. Uh, PVCs after the registration. I don't think they're doing enough. I think more needs to be done. I think ANEC needs to be hugely involved in voter, in voter education. Are they doing enough? Far from doing enough. But also,
2: I am a student of history. And I ask myself, you know, one of the things that makes history so uh, a
1: profound statement about World War II and its closing e- the moment,
2: when Hitler, you know, uh, wanted uh, to withdraw, or had to withdraw, not wanted to, from, from Paris, he wanted Paris destroyed. And he
1: called the German commander in Paris, Von Colise, General Von Kulis, and asked him to destroy the city. This was a loyal Hitler general. And Von Kulis went into his bedroom, donned his uniform, looked himself in the mirror and said why should history remember me as the man who destroyed the most beautiful city in the world and he sent a message to the allies to move in and take paris before hitler realizes that he's not going to destroy paris and as time was going of course the allies didn't trust him they thought it was a trap evan uh, kept sending messages coming hitler realizing he was not going to do. De- Instructed an SS Panzer Division to begin to move into Paris. And the message fell into the hands of a leader of a ragtag French free French forces army, Charles de Gaulle. And Charles de Gaulle drove into Paris and took it without resistance before the Panzer Division could get there. I'm just hoping that a couple of people in Aenec will ask themselves that question. Why should history remember us as a people? Who prevented the Nigerian people
0: from becoming free. It's on that note that we want to thank you so much, uh, Professor Tommy, and to hope that your wishes for the electoral process and indeed uh, the leadership contest coming up uh, do come true for the benefit of the country. But for now, thank you for being our guest on the program today. Great pleasure. That's our program today. Would of course like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast, to get started. I am Ladi Akiridulwali. Goodbye. <laughs>